I think similar to any of the great revivals throughout Christian history, especially the Advent Awakening in the 19th century, and, and even Ellen White refers to and alludes that right before Christ comes, there's going to be a great revival in the spirit of 1844. So this sort of harkening back to the birth of the movement that's going to, that same vitality through the Holy Spirit will be, you know, the, the Holy Spirit will be poured out sort of like this latter rain that we're going to see that happen once again. Uh, right before Christ uh, returns. So it behooves us to pay attention, be awake spiritually. Have you ever wondered why God used prophets and apostles in the Old and New Testament to lead and guide his people during the time the Bible was being written, but then all of a sudden stopped? I know I have. I mean, we have the clear word of the prophets not only predicting and proclaiming the first coming of Jesus and what he came to accomplish on our behalf, but even a stronger call to look for his second coming, or the day of the Lord, as many of them called it. But if the day of the Lord is almost here, shouldn't we also expect the voice of the prophet to reappear as well, joining in and encouraging the church in the last days to stay faithful to God and avoid the many traps and deceptions set by the enemy of souls to lead them astray? One text that is unavoidable in the book of Revelation in describing God's last day remnant people is Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And it reads, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So here we have a description of the remnant of the last days as those who keep the commandments of God. Now we've already talked extensively in this podcast about the importance God places on his law in many of our earlier episodes, particularly episode 13. But what about the testimony of Jesus? Notice the remnant doesn't just keep the law of God, but they have an experience with Jesus as well. The Apostle Paul's prayer for Christ in you, the hope of glory, is manifest in such a powerful way in them that Revelation 19 verse 10 further unpacks the testimony of Jesus, calling it the spirit of prophecy. We'll be talking more about the remnant in future episodes. But for now, I wanted to get some historical perspective on whether or not we begin to see a people organizing together around 1844 who were looking forward to the coming of Jesus, keeping the commandments of God, and guided by the spirit of prophecy. Why? Because that is when all the time prophecies come to an end, as we have already studied. So in this episode, I had the privilege to interview Dr. Michael Campbell, who besides being a full-time religion professor at Southwestern Adventist University, somehow finds time to contribute to lengthy scholarly projects like the Ellen G. White Encyclopedia and the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Seventh-day Adventism, but also writes books that can be read in a few hours like 1919, the untold story of Adventism's struggle with fundamentalism. One of my favorite reads from last year, actually. And if that weren't enough, he also hosts a popular podcast called Sabbath School Rescue. 
where you can tune in for weekly discussions on the Sabbath School Quarterly. All right, well, without further ado, let's get right into the interview. Dr. Campbell, it is so great to have you on the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me, Travis. Yes, and uh, I know you are currently uh, teaching uh, down at Southwestern Adventist University in Texas, and I also know that you're a little bit into um, podcasting as well, and, and you're a part of a couple projects, so how would uh, somebody connect with you through the podcast world? Yeah, so uh, the beginning of this year, my colleague Buster Swoops, uh, who teaches with me here at Southwestern, we started a new podcast uh, about the Sabbath School Quarterly, the Adult Quarterly. And so we have a weekly podcast. It's called Sabbath School Rescue. You can go to sabbathschoolrescue.org, to iTunes, to Spotify, any major place where you get uh, your podcast from, and we're on there. So it's it's been a lot of fun to learn and enter into the world of podcasting, and of course, uh, providing uh, resources for several other good friends of mine that are doing uh, similar podcasts in Adventist history and theology, uh, especially excited about the Conflict Audible. Big shout out to them. They're doing an amazing job, as well as Matthew Lucio's Adventist history podcast. So great resources. And I'm hoping by the end of this year, we'll be launching a new podcast uh, called uh, This Week in, in Adventist History that uh, we're kind of gearing up for. So hope to have that launch. So stay tuned for that uh, coming out uh, later this year. That's, that's awesome. I love that. I love to see the church really embracing digital technology for reaching um, the next generation. And um, because there, there's so much uh, rich history um, and it needs to be told in a way that uh, people can consume it in an easy manner. And uh, yeah. I know for me personally, I've like the world of Audible books has really opened up a lot um, for me personally. And uh, recently I've been just uh, enjoying some biographies uh, with my daughter. And we've been listening to some of these biographies about early Christian missionaries and early Christian reformers. And they just really stir within me, even listening with my daughter, just this passion to um, to tell the world to to get out of our comfort zone and do something for God. So, so as a historian, um, curious, uh, who is your favorite um, biography, or like who who is one of your favorite characters, um, and how did how did your own experience kind of lead you into becoming a church history professor? Yeah, great questions. I just want to back up for a second here because you know talking about how teaching is changing with the COVID and podcasting and everything else is uh, I'm just really seeing how it is, you know, teaching today, especially at the college level is different than it was 20, 30 years ago, new generation. So uh, for the very first time, I'm actually uh, asking my students to uh, have required listening to a podcast. So the uh, conflict audible I mentioned, I'm making students in my Ellen White writings class listen to that. But we're also, instead of it being just, you know, having PowerPoint with lectures and information, um, I think now a new generation, you have to make it much more fun and interactive. 
interactive learning. And so I do have readings as well. It's not like I don't have readings, but uh, it's, it's much more dynamic in how I've set up my classes. And for example, when I teach Adventist history, I'll have a picture they have to research or uh, one of the fun assignments that's been extremely popular is I have a whole bunch of early Adventist cookbooks. So then students in my class have to find one of these and actually get a, a recipe and make it and bring it to class and share with fellow students. Oh my so, goodness, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of it's just a lot of fun. And uh, anyways, that, that, that's just another way of how I see things changing. Um, but to church history and how kind of you know it impacted me. Um, there's a lot of different people. I, you know, as a young person, I studied my way into the church with my mom. And um, after uh, uh, some years, I had, had read the book Great Controversy and was really interested in Martin Luther and the Reformation. So that really got me excited mm. and started reading some biographies about Luther. So for him, he's always been one of my heroes. Um, and so if there was kind of after Adventist history, uh, Reformation studies has been sort of like a second passion of mine. And so that kind of really got me interested in the broad field of church history. Uh, but then, you know, in terms of Adventist studies, uh, I, I became very interested in all the different people, uh, both William Miller as well as others around the world. My favorite character being Joseph Wolf, who was this Jew in Germany, converted to Catholicism, eventually became a Protestant and became this uh, missionary through the Middle East, through uh, North and Central Africa, all the way out to India, goes on these series of missionary tours telling people about Christ in return. So uh, one of the things that's always fascinated me is how Adventism began as a global movement with a wide variety of, uh, a wide cast of characters literally around the world who, from my perspective, God raised up as they mm-hmm. studied the Bible and Bible prophecy that Christ is coming again. So Joseph Wolf has to be up there for me as one of my favorites. I've well, read a lot of his books and collected yeah. his books. And yeah. yeah, let me jump in. Like I actually haven't read his story, so now I it's got to it's got to go to the top <laughs> of my list. So which right? book in particular is there one like that is like the work that you would recommend learning about him? Yeah, so the, the best one would be his two-volume. It's quite lengthy and sometimes repetitious. So, I mean, you have to, it's, 19th century, it's a 19th century memoir, basically. Uh, but he's, he's basically telling his story. And so it's called The Travels and Adventures of Joseph Wolf. If you just Google it, there's several different websites that have digital versions of, you know, basically scanned in where you can just read that book. It's a pretty rare uh, volume to actually find those, but uh, yeah, it's it's it makes for great reading. There's a lot of stories. Someone needs to write a great you know current biography just because it's so so fun. I mean, here's this guy that almost gets killed so many times, goes across through the desert, gets taken as a slave, put in a dungeon, uh, is rescued. I mean, the he he's traveling across the border into India, going across a. a, a one of these hanging bridges riding on the back of the elephant screams all the way across finally gets the other side, gets uh, some contagious disease, goes delirious, is about to die from it. And the burning, the building he's in burns to the ground and someone pulls him out of the, the building. I mean, it's just story after story that is both showing God's providence, but also a holy boldness and a conviction of, of scripture of Christ's soon return and the desire to want to share that. So, 
a lot of great stories. Um, some people will probably appreciate with the COVID-19, um, you know, what surprised me, I recently read through both volumes is how many times he was quarantined, how many times he lived through pandemics. It's such an ordinary part of, of life. You know, sometimes today people are like, oh, is this a sign of the end? But, you know, 150 years ago, it was such a, a daily part of life that nobody thought twice about it. You know, pandemics were just a terrible reality of life. And he'd just gone through uh, what today would, you know, basically the Persian Empire, a terrible pandemic gets to uh, where he's going and it heads out on a new travel uh, on a new caravan and uh, camels and everything. And they get swarmed by a couple hundred bandits that are known for killing everybody. And he rushes out to the front of the camel train, waves his hand and speaks in the local language, you know, plague, plague. Uh, we have just been through the land of the plague and here are all these bandits ready to kill them and realizing these people are infected possibly with the plague they start galloping away just as fast. And so uh, several points in his biography, apparently it was a very momentous occasion where he reflected about how his life, his life was actually saved by a pandemic. And so that's kind of a fun story, uh, uh-huh. but he was a extraordinary personality and, uh, and missionary, you know, it's, it's, it's so, um, and what I love about history and church history is that these were real people who God used, and um, despite their flaws and foibles, but yet uh, as they come to life from just dry, distant figures in the past, you start to learn their stories um, as, as they kind of jump out at the page, uh, to me at least. Um, so to me, I, I love stories. So anybody that loves stories, you love history. At least history properly told mm-hmm. should be engaging you as you learn what those stories are about. Yeah, and I think there's there's a lot of general ignorance out there when it comes to um, church history in particular, and uh, it's just because it's just not told a lot. And even in in churches, modern churches, a lot of the, a lot of history that's more than a hundred years old is is rarely talked about anymore. But there is this this kind of overarching story that, like you mentioned, starts with Luther. And, you know, we begin this, what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about that here on Adventology, but I haven't really, you know, engaged much in that kind of general progression from Martin Luther up to William Miller and kind of the beginning of the Advent movement, which is kind of where we're at right now in in our podcast kind of progression. So. What are some of the significant things that kind of happen, you know, briefly between Luther and kind of the beginning of the of the awakening of the Advent movement? Yeah, so you know, as as early Adventist pioneers uh, would frequently point to that uh, they saw themselves very much in the lineage as direct descendants of Luther and the Reformation. That's not to say that Luther believed all the things that. Uh, we have Seventh-day Adventist beliefs, but, but there, there are some core values and commitments that he started, uh, first and foremost being sola scriptura, the idea that scripture, you don't need a priest or someone else or even tradition to mediate the interpretation of scripture. So that commitment to scripture and scripture alone um, is paramount. And of course, you know, we don't have time to go through basically 500 years of church history, but um, you know, there's a number of different reform movements. Um, you have the main 
Reformation itself with Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli have the Anabaptists who are taking even more radical, you know, scripture and scripture alone, even uh, repudiating things like infant baptism and stuff like that. So, uh, and being uh, advocating for pacifism or no engagement in uh, warfare and politics, those kinds of things. Um, Adventists have always seen themselves first and foremost as heirs of Luther and the magisterial reformation, but specifically through the Anabaptist tradition is where we really see our roots as Adventists. Um, this, again, this radical commitment to, uh, scripture alone. And so you can kind of look back through the last several hundred years. You can see, uh, as the various Anabaptists were, uh, radical reformers, as they were sometimes known, as they continued to uh, push for continued reforms, reforms in education and society, uh, in terms of theology. And so uh, we see a lot of influence there. Another uh, significant kind of era of the Reformation is the Methodist movement with John Wesley in the 1700s. Uh, and that's significant because Ellen White, one of our church pioneers, among others, uh, came out of Methodism too. So you have sort of a strong Anabaptist, but also through the Methodist tradition. Um, again, uh, and that's about the time they become really popular in America about the time that America is being founded as a nation. And so Methodism and the Baptists coming from the Anabaptists, right? Mm-hmm. Those two late 17, early 1800s are the two largest denominations in the United States. And so, and it's, it's intriguing to me that the vast majority of our early members, as well as our ministers, were from either of those two uh, religious movements. So, uh, again, that's, that's really, it doesn't do justice, but, and, and just in very broad strokes kind of paints some of the history. But there's, there's always been sort of a direct lineage that, that we can trace back theologically uh, from our earliest beginnings. Uh, and so, yeah, we would like to point that, and we're not the only heirs of the Reformation or of the Anabaptist tradition, but we certainly are part of that. Yeah, and I think I think seeing the the quote unquote like family tree of the Protestant Reformation is is important because um, you know sometimes someone can go out and they can drive down the road and they just see all these different churches with with these uh, different uh, names. And, uh, and, you know, just by doing that, there's, there's no clear, like, rhyme or reason why all these different churches exist. And there's a lot of people, you know, today who kind of just say, well, why do we have denominations, you know? So, um, so church history is really important in understanding, you know, where, where all these comes from and, and how we fit into that, um, and so, you know, particularly with the Advent movement, um, what was going on around that time? You know, uh, you know, in the in the early to mid eighteen hundreds, um, and and uh, you know, what what was it that that uh, kind of uh, what would how would you describe the Advent movement? Was it was it a was it an ecumenical movement? Yeah, uh, absolutely. It was a completely an ecumenical movement in that it was pan-denominational. It wasn't just like out of one specific tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let me just point First of all, uh, in the 19th century, you have a, a, a number of, of people claiming to have the prophetic gift uh, and having their own revelations. And so 
you have Mary uh, Baker Eddy at the end of the century. At the beginning, you have um, uh, George Fox. You have the uh, the well, you have the Shakers, for example, um, and uh, just a whole wide variety of different characters in between. You have Joseph Smith, who founds the Church of Latter Day Saints, right? Um, and where Adventists draw the line is, we say Scripture and Scripture alone. And a lot of these other prophets and prophecies are saying, well, we have the only way to properly understand Scripture. So you have to use, you know, my writings in order to understand the Bible. And Ellen White is very interesting in, in staying consistent with the Protestant tradition thing. Um, and she believes she had visions. We'll talk about that more later. But but her visions were to point people back to the authority of Scripture, to the primacy of Scripture, and ultimately to Jesus Christ himself. So that's that's one point I think that's really uh, important to know in the in the 19th century and how Adventism started with all of that. The other thing that's significant is in the late 1700s, early 1800s, you start seeing a lot of people pointing to the fulfillment of prophecy of the 1260 day or year prophecies that a lot of people uh, were looking to the late 1700s. Uh, sometime around the period relating to the uh, what eventually becomes known as the French Revolution, that they're seeing this as an endpoint to Bible prophecy, signaling the time of the end that Bible prophecy is being fulfilled and people need to be prepared, and that there'd be different signs and, and that sort of thing. Uh, one Just one of many examples is Sir Isaac Newton that I think a lot of your listeners will right away recognize. He's well known for his scientific contributions, one of the greatest scientists of all time. But he actually wrote more about the Bible, about religion. In fact, he wrote a, a book published right at the end of his life, uh, actually just came out just after he had passed away on the apocalypse um, of, of the, the book of Daniel and, and the Revelation. So you you have, um, and he's pointing to the same thing that others are, that Bible prophecy is being fulfilled. The time of the end is near uh, within a generation or two. And of course, that's in the mid to early uh, 1700s, but there's many others like them reading the Bible, studying Bible prophecy, looking and coming to the similar conclusion that Christ's return must be soon. Bible prophecy is being fulfilled. Wake up, pay attention. And literally all around the world, within a couple of decades, you start to see uh, some often independent of one another uh, just as a couple of quick examples, uh, Manuel Acunza was a Jesuit priest in South America, I believe down in Chile and Argentina. He writes a book on Bible prophecy that's widely circulated throughout uh, Latin America. Uh, you have Daniel Wilson in India. You have Thomas Playford in Australia. And, of course, I already mentioned Joseph Wolf, who's my personal favorite, but there were many others, both uh, in Europe on the continent as well as in uh, England, who were studying these prophecies. So in a way, you see sort of a movement uh, that is beginning to uh, join forces in terms of similar people. In England, there was a whole series of conferences in the 1820s called the Albury Park Conferences, because there was that much interest in Bible prophecy being fulfilled. And Joseph Wolfe was a part of that group of conferences. And of course, here in America, there was, and, and I would say not just America, Canada too, my family's Canadian, so I don't want to leave out uh, my Canadian friends here, but the United States and Canada, you have William Miller and others who are basically uh, calling attention. And, and America was in a, a time where there's a lot of revivals and revivalism. It's a big deal. 
Charles Finney and others are calling attention, um, asking for people to come forward, come to the anxious bench and call for conversion. So this emphasis on conversion. And William Miller was very much in that milieu that, you know, calling for people to be converted, but um, because and, and because of that conversion, because people love Jesus and were passionately in love with him, um, to be ready uh, out of that relationship for Christ's soon uh, return. And so that was sort of that uh, milieu that uh, revivalism um, in America, but also a global movement uh, that certainly uh, spans many different denominations. And uh, William Miller was a Baptist, but we also know that there were uh, many others that joined his ranks in the U.S. and Canada uh, from a whole variety of different denominations, and they were united around a common cause, Bible prophecies being fulfilled, Jesus is coming again very soon. Yeah, and I think that's that's important to, um, to recognize because, um, you know, once something becomes established and you have decades and now over a century since, since it took place, um, you know, the the Adventist people have kind of um, become institutionalized to some degree because it has become a denomination. But but when like you were just saying, when it when it all started, it it was very much a a just a very um, open group of people who who like you were just saying were just excited about Bible prophecy and the soon coming of Jesus and. Uh, yeah, it it just kind of gives me hope when I think about the future because obviously, um, you know, we're still here, <laughs> and uh, you know, I do believe there's going to be another movement of interest around those two things: Bible prophecy and and the second coming of Jesus. So, uh, bef- before we get back to to uh, just some of the other thoughts that I wanted to talk to you about, what, what do you think about that? Do you think that that's you know, as, as you look around today, do you see that that could possibly happen again, where we have a, a a lot of people just from different, you know, even Christian, maybe even non-Christian backgrounds coming together uh, because of an interest in in prophecy and the soon coming of Jesus? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's, that's what I think Scripture is very clear, is at the end of the day, it's a, a faithful commitment to a relationship with Christ and staying true to the principles of scripture. And, you know, there, there's, you know, the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? So there's going to be some that are within the church that will fall away and that there's going to be others outside who are hidden, who will come in. And it's really not our job to, to really say who's, which, who, who belongs to which group. But uh, certainly I believe with all my heart that, yeah, that that's exactly what's going to happen is, uh, and, and there's various, uh, illusions, biblical illusions about the latter rain, about a, a last day swelling. So I think similar to any of the great revivals throughout Christian history, especially the Advent awakening in the 19th, 19th century, and, and even Ellen White refers to and alludes that right before Christ comes, there's going to be a great revival in the spirit of 1844. So this sort of harkening back to the birth of the movement that's going to, that same vitality through the Holy Spirit will be you know, the, the Holy Spirit will be poured out sort of like this latter rain that we're going to see that happen once again, uh, right before Christ uh, returns. So it behooves us to pay attention, be awake spiritually. You know, I'm, or the other parable I'm reminded of is the 10 virgins, right? They all had oil 
but uh, some were sleeping, and eventually uh, those that that went to resupply, um, some were left sleeping and not paying attention. Those that were awake were spiritually awake when the bridegroom actually came. So again, that that illusion, that parable is really important to the early Millerites, to the Adventists in the 19th century, as a way of reminding people, be faithful, uh, don't give up your hope, uh, remain faithful that Christ is coming, and uh, don't be like the sleeping, like the, uh, the, the virgins that weren't ready. Right, and I think that's why studying history is so important, because if history is going to repeat itself, then there are things that we can learn from, um, you know, kind of the the first angel's message or the or the 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 kind of midnight cry that they referred to it as, um, based on the the parable that you just mentioned. Um, right. But, but a greater at a greater extent, like on a worldwide scale, um, you know, that's going to be um, in some ways repeated. So, so that's why I kind of wanted to spend a little time looking at kind of this, you know, the the movement itself, particularly after 1844, right? Because we know that yeah. the the it kind of came to a head, and everybody believed Jesus was going to come in 1844. And we've studied a little bit about this already on this podcast. The 2300 day prophecy um, was mm-hmm. believed to have ended on October 22nd, 1844, and of course. It didn't happen. So, um, what historically happened to the movement um, after that disappointment? You know, I've read it kind of split. So, can you share a little bit about that yeah. and then how that how that could be helpful to us today? Yeah, you know, there there was at least three major categories, not just I wouldn't say three groups, but three categories. There's those that gave up their faith altogether. Uh, some that repudiated uh, religion, others that went into sort of spiritualism, which became extremely popular in America during the 1840s. And so uh, there were some people that just gravitated naturally right over to that uh, from Adventism. Um, You know, and that's why, you know, where your grounding is, it's not just the feelings and emotionalism of it. And certainly for some people, that was a factor and I think those tended to be the people that were attracted away into some of these other kind of movements or uh, certainly it's very understandable and, and was no doubt. And I don't want to minimize in any way the trauma of being disappointed. Uh, I know it's a little tangent. Some people have asked me, you know, why would God allow disappointments? But, you know, that's true in all of our individual lives. But, you know, you ask the same question, why did Jesus allow the disciples to be disappointed when he was crucified? Right. But out of, our disappointments, God makes, creates teachable moments where those that are willing, uh, that great revivals can take place. And for after Christ's death, you have Pentecost, right? So, uh, and I, I see that sort of as the, uh, also, in, you know, same thing in 1844, uh, you have a group um, who, the, those who remain that are, are really still looking for Christ to come. And and there's basically two different groups of those who remain looking for Christ in return. Some say, you know, I don't know how I got the prophecy wrong, but Christ must be coming. William Miller would certainly be in that category. People would ask him, well, why isn't Christ coming? Basically, they say, I, I don't know. And they say, well, do you expect Christ to come? And he has a famous line in his autobiography, The Memoirs of William Miller, where he says, I expect Christ to come today, today, today. And the last today is all in caps. So for, you know, this dramatic emphasis, 
he's still waiting for Christ to come. And then you have a third group that say, you know, the prophecies of uh, Daniel and Revelation, they must be correct. All the math lines up, but maybe we're mistaken as to the nature of the event. So instead of the cleansing in Daniel 8.14 that's going to take place, instead of it being this earth by fire, maybe there's some other kind of cleansing that's taking place. And so they start to really dig into scripture. And the key person in this narrative at this point is a man in Western New York, Port Gibson, New York, by the name of Hiram Edson. And uh, I just found a new source I'd never seen. I, I don't know if anyone, any Adventist historian has used this before uh, this week when, when I discovered it, but it's a memoir by his daughter where she's reflecting back on this experience. And he's basically in a, in a cornfield where uh, his, his friends who he had waited for Christ to come and they had wept and wept all night. Uh, wept till the day dawned as we have that in a manuscript in his handwriting. And that next morning they uh, prayed. And so they went to encourage some other disappointed believers. That's why they're walking through a field. They're not going on a road. They didn't want the public ridicule. And so some of his friends got ahead of him. They, and they're wondering why he's behind. And he said, his, according to his daughter, it says that the heavens open, he saw the sanctuary in heaven. And that challenged him to, uh, go back with his friends and really study it anew. And they really began to realize, well, the sanctuary that's to be cleansed isn't this earth by fire. It's actually the ministry of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. So then this third group, they take Bible prophecy seriously, but the nature, uh, they, they understood that they had misunderstood exactly what was to take place at the fulfillment of that prophecy. And so I find that um, utterly riveting. And so that new understanding uh, and, and so they, they have several names for them uh, that people have uh, described them. Some have called them the shut door Adventists because they believe that the door had been shut. In other words, they believe the validity of Bible prophecy was still real. Um, other people have, uh, Merlin Burt has called them the bridegroom Adventists, I think referring to that same parable of the, the virgins waiting for Christ to come. Uh, or others have simply called them Sabbatarian Adventists because they become basically the precursors of what we call the Seventh-day Adventist Church today. So that underpinning, by the way, there's a neat little underlying uh, little story there. I love stories. So uh, according to the daughter, uh, soon after that walk in the cornfield, they went back to study the topic of the sanctuary. He had some of the believers there studying the Bible together, and a mob of 40 people came and and basically attacked them in their house. And at one point they grab one of the Millerites that's in his, in his higher medicine's house and are dragging him out. And one of the Millerites grabs the, the Miller, the other Millerite back, trying to pull him back. And one of the mobsters grabs a frying pan off of the oven, hits the guy over the head above the eye and there's blood. And it's a kind of a, it's a bad situation. And higher medicine, he jumps into the middle of the fray because you can chop me to little pieces, but I will not give up my faith in Christ's soon return. And apparently it was so dramatic that the mob was was flustered by this, and they left and left them alone um, at, at, after that point. So it's kind of a neat little story, a little human interest element, but it shows sort of the uh, high uh, intense moment uh, in that post-disappointment world where there's trying to understand the Bible, and yet um, they're being derided for their faith in Christ soon return. Yeah, I can only imagine, you know, because 
you know, obviously we don't have <laughs> near the amount of time to, to talk about a lot of the details surrounding, you know, those those three years in particular prior to to that great disappointment. But but the people literally were selling everything they had. I mean, they were, you know, just completely sold out. A lot of them had been kicked out of their churches and denominations, and they, you know, they were just all for God, and, and, and then it didn't happen. So around the same time, you know, with all this disappointment you're describing, you know, mobs and people ridiculing and people questioning their faith, there's this young girl, and you've mentioned her several times, a 16-year-old girl, Ellen Harmon, later known as Ellen White. Uh, she has her first vision in the midst of all this craziness. So yeah. t- talk a little bit about this first vision in particular. Yeah, so you have to remember, you know, this is a time of that's really intense in the post-disappointment world where Ellen and her parents, who were committed believers, you know, Millerites, uh, and still waiting for Christ to come, and yet uh, wondering what will happen. And Ellen was very sick at that time. Uh, had, you know, she's struggling with tuberculosis, so she's at a friend's house, Elizabeth Haynes, who's a fellow Millerite, uh, giving her mother a break, who would often stay up all night to make sure that uh, this young teenager would not drown in her own blood from this terrible disease. And so that's why she's at a friend's house, and that next morning there's a group of ladies that gather around for morning prayer to encourage each other spiritually into the midst of prayer. And it's interesting to me, it's almost always Ellen uh, throughout her prophetic ministry, the rest of her life, it's been a occasion of, of intense, uh, some kind of spiritual situation where either people are gathered in prayer or maybe uh, sometimes at a funeral or a church service, but some kind of, some kind of very focused spiritual moment, right? And so this is where she's taken off uh, for her very first vision that had to have been quite remarkable. We know from a number of primary source accounts of people that saw her in vision that she would, they were all gathered kneeling down in prayer. So she often would look up into up and uh, above as if she's seeing something far away from them. Uh, there were a lot of physical signs. She wouldn't breathe. People couldn't move her. So there's some supernatural phenomena that's definitely going on there. Uh, but, but most important is when she comes out of vision and she shares with them what she saw. And I argue when I teach classes on this that uh, this first vision is the most significant of her entire prophetic ministry because it really summarizes or encapsulates um, all the major themes of what who she was and the significance of her prophetic ministry. And there's three parts to this vision. I would encourage people to read them. Uh, you can read them easily in the book Early Writings, but uh, you can read if you just Google to to the little remnant scattered abroad. Archives.org has a scan of the the broadside, which is just basically a cheap way of producing a mass huge print of something, and that's how her first vision was publicly shared. And then she also wrote it um, in a uh, to one of the local Adventist Millerite editors to the Day Star, uh, to Enoch Jacobs, where she recounts her vision. So. Uh, read it either in letter form in that uh, periodical, which she didn't plan to have that letter published, so, uh, or as it was edited soon afterwards into a broadside format. But imagine this young teenage girl struggling to try to write out what she had seen. Now, there's three parts to the vision. First, the first part is where she sees Jesus actually coming in the clouds of glory. She sees the second advent take place. And for someone who's waiting for Christ to return, to actually see him come had to have been very encouraging. The second part of the vision is that she 
uh, sees a narrow path from this earth up to the heavenly city. And at the end of the path is Jesus. There's a light coming from Jesus. And those that keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, the beginning of the path, there's a smaller light. And she's told that that's the advent uh, or the, the, what's called the midnight cry or the advent awakening, basically this movement she was a part of that where people entered upon the path and they kept, you know, this allusion to a biblical path that gets narrower as time goes on all the way up into the pearly gates. And most of all, and most important is Jesus is at the, at the, at the end of the path. And, and she's told that those who keep their eyes on Jesus will make it all the way. Those that take their eyes off of Jesus would fall off the path into the dim, dark world below. And then the third part of the vision is she's actually in heaven. She sees the banquet table, the tree of life, all of these glorious things. It's It's amazing. It's beautiful. Um, and she, she takes a walk basically with Jesus through heaven and sees, and she wants to eat of the fruit, uh, but she's told, you can't do that. You can't return back to earth anymore if you are to partake of this fruit. And so she has a glimpse again of, of heaven. But what I find uh, extraordinary is as she's recounting this first vision, whatever version you happen to read, I think you can definitely get the point, is that the vision is all focused about Jesus. And secondly is, and again, whatever version you happen to read, is the copious scriptural references throughout the visions. I mean, here is a lady who is saturated in the Bible and values the primacy of scripture. And these two foci become the major uh, focus of her entire prophetic ministry, um, as far as I'm concerned, is she's, she's passionately in love with Jesus and wants to share uh, her Lord and Savior and friend Jesus with others. And and so you just see that right there from the get-go from her first vision. And she's also equally passionate that uh, people need to be immersed in Scripture, uh, that the, the primacy of Scripture, back, going back to the Reformation of Sola Scriptura, uh, she never for a moment sees her writings as in any way replacing uh, the authority of Scripture. Obviously, if there, if, you know, there's references in the Bible uh, in Joel chapter 2, 28 to 30, about in the end of times, your um, young men and women that will uh, have dreams and visions and that sort of thing. That uh, So there, if you take the Bible seriously, you have to allow that there's po- the possibility of visions at the end of time, right before Christ comes. That's, that's, that's clearly biblical. So, uh, but... Uh, so they may come, quant- you know, in terms of the same source, in terms of being divinely inspired, but not for a moment, not for one iota that you see her writings replacing or as the lens or filter through which the Bible had to be interpreted. Rather, it's always the w- other way around, that her writing must be tested by Scripture and consistent with Scripture. And so, uh, and pointing people and illuminating um, the, the Bible uh, and at one point, she even says if, if people had been really faithfully studying the Bible like they should have uh, should have been, uh, they wouldn't have even needed uh, the writings, the, the, the prophetic guidance that God had given through her. So I'm paraphrasing that uh, a little bit, but the, you get the idea, I think. So um, that's what she's about, her first vision. And it had to have been uh, incredible to be a disappointed Millerite just afterwards getting made fun of for your faith and everything else, and then to have this reassurance that, hey, don't give up your faith. Christ is coming. I've seen there is a better land. Uh, Don't be discouraged. And I I love right at the end of the vision, she says, oh, that I could speak in the language of Canaan. Um, It was just, and that's really where Ellen White was. Here she is. She sees a taste of heaven, and to put that into human words was 
a struggle for her uh, to put into human language just how incredible what she had seen really was. Yeah, and I know every time I read that vision personally, it uh, it has a, a deep effect on me because it is is so riveting in the detail and yet like you just said it's not fanatical it just it's just very somber in the sense of but hopeful like it there's there's a there's an earnestness to it and a and a, a genuineness of uh the goal which is the which really describes the whole Advent movement, which is to to be ready for Jesus, and and that's what this podcast is about. You know, we talk about that every week, and, and so now we have a prophet that is actually, and then she probably didn't actually call herself a prophet. I believe she called herself the messenger of the Lord, um, but she didn't yeah. mind others calling her that. Um, but as you, you know, people didn't necessarily accept it as you. As we could all imagine today, people still have a hard time when yeah. they first hear about a prophet. So how did the early Adventist church kind of accept her and then defend her when yeah. when people started to criticize the idea of a modern prophet? Yeah, so I was just about to say that, you know, um, she preferred to call herself the Lord's messenger when people challenged her on that, like, why, you know, and she's, well, there's so much prejudice that exists against prophets that she really just didn't see that as being helpful that, that, uh, to use that term. And she also saw her work as being broader than that of a prophet, but you're right. She, she certainly didn't challenge anyone that did call her a prophet either. So, um, but she described or saw herself as sort of like more than a prophet. So, um, yes, she was certainly a prophet in, in the, in the classic biblical sense, um, and fulfilled that. And Seventh-day Adventists quickly, you know, as, you know, of course, the church didn't organize until 1863, but the group that coalesced around these doctrines, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, and these other, you know, the state of the dead and um, second coming also uh, began to rally around the fact that, hey, the last day of the soul of the prophetic gift is one of these signs of God's, uh, God's church at the very end of time that are preparing and waiting eagerly for Christ to return, right? So, uh, so that's that's a big part of it. How did, you know, in terms of them recognizing that uh, she never saw that her writings ne- were necessarily should be a test of, say, church membership, but rather uh, an willingness or an openness to to examine them for for oneself, and so an openness, at least, to the idea that there could be biblical or true prophetic revelations. And that people needed to test those according to uh, according to scripture, uh, to the law, and to the testimony. Isaiah chapter eight twenty, the classic text. Uh, but you know, these were these biblical tests of a true prophet, um, and, and Adventists needed to utilize those faithfully to make sure that both her gift was legitimate and valid, uh, and, uh, and 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 to examine others. Because there were, you know, at the same time in, in the 1840s that she has her first vision, there's at least 50 other people in New England that are claiming to be prophets. So you can kind wow. of see there's a bit of going on. <laughs> yeah. And so you can see why she's very reticent to say, oh, I'm a prophet, um, because there was just that skepticism. So many people were doing it was popular. Oh, I'm a prophet or I'm a mesmerist or whatever, claiming to know the future. And so instead she... She saw her. She didn't want to be confused with that, uh, and to give people hopefully enough openness to test 
what she was saying and writing uh, with that of scripture so that people could decide for themselves on that basis. So, um, so you start to see uh, a bit of that. And of course, to be alive and actually see or have a vision would have been extraordinary. Uh, and just like today, if, if we had someone that is claiming to have the prophetic gift, you would want to do the same kinds of things, test them according to scripture, um, you know, uh, uh, by your fruits, you shall know them. Matthew chapter seven with, with Jesus that they should have a, not that, not that a prophet doesn't make mistakes, but they should have an authenticity of a genuine Christian life, right? They're not, they're not trying to dupe people and that sort of thing. Um, and Jeremiah talks about how a true prophet, basically their vision, uh, the, the, the prediction should come true and should come to pass. Right. Um, and, uh, certainly we see that she wasn't about making lots and lots of predictions, but she did make some and those did come true. Um, one of the most interesting ones was one I read just this last week by, uh, early Adventist minister who wrote about how he was very skeptical about Ellen White. Here he is growing up and, you know, believed in the message, but was she really a true prophet? And he showed up at a camp meeting and he wrote about this later in life and how there was a couple there that they were basically breaking the seventh commandment. And she, Ellen White, showed up at camp meeting, didn't know anybody there basically, and had been shown these people in vision and rebuked them. And so he realized there that there was no chance. She just came in by train the night before. No one could have warned her people, you know, and, and so this had to be some sort of divine revelation that God, and obviously they, uh, uh, we don't know the whole story, but basically uh, it was, had, it came out, it verified that what Ellen White had said was true. Uh, and so, you know, he began to realize in front of his very eyes that, um, you know, this, this must be some kind of something divine had to be at hand at work here in order for something like that to take place. So um, there, the, basically the predictions or these kind of revelations, um, they should be, they should be genuine. They should show that they are coming true. And so for bliss, at least this early Adventist, he later became a minister. That was a turning point for him in believing the prophetic gift. And of course, First John um, uh, talks about how one of the tests of a true prophet is they should always point to the d- true divine human nature of Christ, pointing people to Jesus. And, um, you know, that's one of the things Ellen White, I think, does very, very well is pointing people to having a personal relationship with Jesus. And any of our listeners that may have not read Ellen White before, I'd encourage you to, to read a book like Steps to Christ. And I challenge you not to be led closer to Christ by reading that little book or to read a book like Desire of Ages, her classic on the life of Jesus, where she just reflects in such a, a, a beautiful way about various facets of the life of Christ while he was on this earth. So that's that's the culmination at the very peak of her life after you know some 50 years of writing and studying about the life of Jesus. And you can quickly see that she was about um, sharing Jesus with others. And um, my favorite quote by Ellen White, Ministry of Healing, page 470, where she talks about the closer we come to Jesus, the more we become loving and lovable Christians. So if we really understand the prophetic gift and what Ellen White is all about, when her writings are used properly, it should make us to become more loving and lovable Christians. Yeah, and I think that's 
I think what you were just saying is, is uh, kind of it leads into like what kind of wanted to talk about, like just kind of bring it back to today um, because, you know, there's, there's a lot of history that one could go into and there's, uh, you know, whole volumes of books written about her life and just kind of how God kind of blessed in different ways through her and blessed others through her. But, you know, it can still seem like a long time ago, you know, even, you know, she's been dead over a hundred years now and the world has changed so much. And so, you know, in 2020, how does somebody get to know Ellen White today? I mean, it sounds like you're saying is like, look, you, you got to experience her for yourself. That's the best way, you know, read her for yourself. Is that what you tell people or is there, is there any other advice you give people for trying to, you know, answer questions they have about her life and ministry? Yeah. You know, when, when I was a young person and I was uh, studying my way into the church, I was initially warned about Adventists saying, oh, they're, they're a cult because they worship Ellen White's writings and that sort of sort of thing. And I, I quickly discovered that that was wrong. And the only reason I discovered that was to actually take the time to read for myself. And the things that people were accusing Ellen White of saying and doing were just flat out lies that were not true. And so, yeah, I think just reading them for yourself. Uh, and, and there's even people that take something that's really great and turn it into a curse, right? I mean, uh, people ask me, you know, I have friends from college and, you know, I uh, got married the same time as we did. And one of them has been, I think, it's on his fourth marriage now after two decades, right? And, you know, I saw one time he's like, marriage is terrible. I'm like, I feel bad for you, but, you know, marriage is great and uh, can keep getting better. So just like anything, it could be both something that's a real blessing, but some people can maybe have a bad experience or or not have experienced in a healthy way. And so the best way is don't take someone else's word for it, but actually, yeah, taste and see it for yourself. Um, And I can just testify from my own personal life that, you know, it has made a significant um, impact. It's challenged me to stay anchored in scripture and, and to keep Christ the, the central focus of my life. And um, yeah, so, and people have questions. Um, it's okay to have questions. It's okay to um, say, hey, how, how do you make sense of this? And there's great resources that the church has. Uh, my good friend, Judd Lake at Southern, we co-authored the Pocket Dictionary of Ellen White together. Uh, and he's come out with a, a book and a website, um, the books Ellen White Under Fire, available through Pacific Press and Amazon and other sources for, for books, wherever you, look, you get your books from. And his website is ellenwhiteanswers.org. And a lot of the common objections by critics, um, it's just by doing a little bit of sleuthing, you can find that there's actually a really good explanation or an answer to them. So I encourage anybody that has uh, questions to uh, you know, find, dig deeper and find out what's there. Don't just take my word for it or someone else's word for it. And, um, and, and just as I mentioned earlier, start with a book like Steps to Christ or Desire of Ages, two classic books about having a relationship with Jesus and who Jesus is. And, um, I find that people who have actually taken that time, uh, to do that, um, you know, no, it's just like eating. You can't do it for someone else. You have to actually try it for yourself and, and do it for yourself. So um, I just challenge our listeners to to do that. Yeah, and I think also, you know, the Bible says, by beholding, we become changed, right? So, you know, if we're reading something that the focus is 
everything is is uh, is about preparing and being ready for Jesus, it can't help but have an impact on our, our lives. And and I think for my own self, I'll just say like I I appreciate her writings in the sense that it, it just it just refocuses my priorities because she's so sure of what her purpose is and her role is in, in being directed to inspire us basically because you know her writings are still with us um, to, to point us to Jesus like you've been mentioning over and over not just Jesus in a kind of uh, which I think is important like a personal relationship with Jesus but the actual reality that Jesus is going to come in the clouds in the sky and there is going to be a generation that is actually alive and then looking and, and, and experiencing this for themselves. And so there is an, I would say, an urgency that comes out as well. So, you know, just as we kind of conclude, how do you see that for yourself? Like, do you see her writings as, as something that gives you hope and kind of explain a little bit more how it's affected your own spirituality? Yeah, well, a couple of different things. Uh, one of them, I think, is that, you know, Joel 2 points to the, at the end of time, there's going to be the prophetic gift manifested once again. But Revelation chapter 12, 17 points to two identifying characteristics of God's people who are waiting for Christ's return. They, they keep all of God's commandments, including the seventh-day Sabbaths, right? The fourth commandment. And they have the testimony of Jesus, which Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, it's going to be someone who has a prophetic gift that points to Jesus. And and there are other churches that are Sabbatarian. There are other uh, denominations and traditions that claim to have a prophetic gift, but, but no church that I know of that claims to have both of these. And and so that should give us a sense of humility to realize there's there's God has called the people at the end of time and given them the prophetic gift that this is significant and so wake us up to call our attention. And I just see that again and again during Ellen White's lifetime. Um, I'll, I'll just give you a quick story. Uh, uh, Stephen Smith was an early Adventist Millerite in Washington, New Hampshire, sort of the first Sabbath-keeping Adventist congregation that was ever kind of uh, coalesced right at the end of the right there in 1843, 1844 in Washington, New Hampshire. And so he's a church member there. And uh, he believes in the doctrines, but he doesn't accept Ellen White. And Ellen White writes some testimonies to him and others there, and he is really offended and just wants nothing to do with the prophetic gift and becomes very bitter and belligerent, so belligerent that eventually stops going to church. And I think even, if I'm not mistaken, I think he loses his membership. He's disfellowshipped, or, or, but he's basically uh, estranged from the, the main group of believers. His wife remains committed to the faith and continues going to church. Ellen White writes a letter to him, and uh, a testimony, as it was called, and uh, earnestly appealing to him to change his life. And uh, he tucks it away in a, in a trunk up in the attic and forgets about it. And decades later, um, he gets out the trunk, sees his testimony, and he opens it up and decides, you know, maybe I should pay attention. He's having a sort of a spiritual awakening. I wonder what Ellen White wrote to me about all those decades ago. And in that testimony, she writes and basically says, you know, that he would ignore uh, and put away this testimony, not read it, but that it was still not too late for him. And so here, through the testimony, 
is uh, he's being told that this would happen just as it did. And, uh, and he repents and becomes a very, very uh, strong supporter of the prophetic gift, uh, changes his life, uh, reconciles himself with his fellow church members. And uh, it's a beautiful story of how the prophetic gift worked in a very tangible and personal way with just one particular individual during Ellen White's lifetime. I think that happens for a lot of people that some people, uh, they may have a misunderstanding or misgivings towards the prophetic gift, but people that when you have an opportunity to actually really engage and read her writing, um, what I can just say is I try to emphasize several times now is that it's just constantly her writings point me to Jesus and they point me to the authority of scripture and the litmus test to know if you're interpreting her writings correctly I think is coming back to that statement by Ellen White, Ministry of Healing, page 470, about being a loving and lovable Christian. If you really understand the context and are interpreting her writings correctly, it will make you become, it will draw you closer to Jesus so that you will become a more loving and lovable Christian. And um, not that I've arrived in any way, but I'm certainly reminded and challenged to want to strive for that more and more in my personal life. And so that's that to me is what she's all about. And I, I encourage people to try for yourself, you know, um, and, uh, we're still learning new things about her life and ministry all the time. Last year, we uh, discovered a new letter that she wrote. Uh, and the more detailed I get into studying, uh, her life, her ministry, the more I just see somebody who was very, uh, an authentic, genuine, person who loved Jesus and sought to share Jesus to the best of her ability with others within her own cultural context of her time. Um, but yet her writings still are incredibly relevant for us today. If we go back and really try to understand them and the principles, um, not, not trying to go back and live like a 19th century person, but, but to take the core ideas to distill them and say, okay, what is, What's the point she's really getting at? And then how can I apply that to my life today? I find that those same principles, when properly applied, just turn out again and again to be such a a blessing in my own personal uh, walk with Jesus. Amen. Amen. So if somebody wants to, like, like, uh, you know, a primer, so to speak, on... uh on her life or, or how to read her writings. You know, there's the, there's the, the primary source material, which would be her own writings. Right. And then for somebody, maybe like a first book for, for learning about her or, or how to read her writings, um, what would you recommend maybe a few books that for somebody to, to, to pick up? Yeah. Well, I've already mentioned, you know, uh, Steps to Christ, Desire of Ages, I might mention a few others, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, Ministry of Healing. That's uh, particularly her, her uh, probably her uh, most extensive book, uh, explaining her understanding of the healing ministry of Jesus and health principles. And Adventists are well known for health and healing and the system of hospitals around the world. So that whole philosophy and system of health that Adventists are recognized uh, for that's probably the best exposition of that uh, from her own time. Uh, if you want something that tells sort of the stories, um, there's the book's early writings and life sketches, which is sort of autobiographical. It tells a lot of the stories of her life. Those are kind of fun. So those are kind of a sampling of, of some of my favorites. Uh, of course, you have the five volumes of the Conflict of the Ages series that go through all of salvation history. 
Patriarchs and Prophets, the Old Testament, Prophets and Kings, the later Old Testament, Desire of Ages, the Life of Christ, which again we've mentioned, Acts of the Apostles, talking about the early Christian church, and then the Great Controversy, talking about church history all the way up, going into the future when Christ uh, comes again, all the way to the end of sin. And uh, again, I just want to reiterate that emphasis, you know, the, that conflict in the ages series becomes sort of the, her uh, most important of all of her writings. At the beginning, she starts out with the word, God is love. And at the end, she finishes with the word, God is love. So again, you see this theme coming through again and again of what she's passionate about, sharing God's love, message of salvation, and Jesus with others. So um, and some people may have some questions about her life, how to understand her life. There's a lot of great resources. I recommend, uh, for example, the LNG White Estate, uh, whiteestate.org. There's tons of uh, all kinds of uh, historical research, uh, different books that have been written on her life and ministry. And of course, I would recommend uh, George Knight's writings. He's written several books, uh, but one of them is Meet Ellen White that you can get uh, both on Amazon as well as Kindle and then reading Ellen White. So someone that wants to kind of get into the principles, how do you correctly interpret her writings? That's a great little primer. And of course, uh, uh, Judd Lake and I, uh, I mentioned earlier, we put together a pocket dictionary of Ellen White. It's meant to be basically a, a brief introduction of how to read and interpret her writings. That came out about uh, two years ago. Highly recommend that if you want just a really basic introduction to her life, pick that up. And again, that's available through Amazon as well as on Kindle. And um, I say a pocket dictionary. We also include in there because she's a 19th century person, right? All of the more unusual words and phrases from her writings. So if someone is just reading her writings for the first time, that's meant to be just kind of a, a nice little resource guide uh, to help you understand some of the historical context and uh Hopefully, it'll be a, a nice little uh, introduction to her life and her writings. Yeah, that's that is so. I mean, I want to say, you know, just myself. I mean, when I was in seminary, I mean, I think for me, the the church history classes, and particularly the the um, the class on on Ellen White, um, were just so helpful uh, in so many ways to to really grasp the 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 history and the purpose behind this great Advent movement. And, uh, and so I just want to thank you so much for uh, giving us a little primer. Uh, and if you really want to learn more, you, you go to enroll in Southwestern and, and take uh, Dr. Campbell's class uh, right there on campus. But in the meantime, uh, <laughs> you can catch up with him uh, through, through his books and podcasts and uh man we we just appreciate you uh coming on today hey thanks again for having me travis thanks for listening to this episode of adventology our goal in this podcast is for you to be ready for jesus and the best way to be ready for jesus is to spend time getting to know him knowing jesus is everything And that is why we spent the time today studying the Advent Awakening and the prophetic gift with Dr. Michael Campbell. And if you've been blessed by this podcast and would like to be part of a movement helping others to be ready for Jesus as well, then I want to encourage you to check out and register for our upcoming Signs of the Second Coming Seminar, 
beginning Friday, October 16 at 7 p.m. You can do it by visiting signsofthesecondcoming.com backslash adventology. There will be a link to it in our show notes. We'll be taking the best of adventology and sharing it with the world. All right, well, I enjoyed our time together today and look forward to seeing you back here on our next episode of Adventology. Maranatha. Maranatha.